finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we read things and we then we talk about them. And we do that 50 times in a row, and then also more than that later. This is our 50th episode. Holy shit. So we're <laughs> recording today in the middle of a very severe thunderstorm here in Philadelphia. Um, pretty much the whole entire planet has gone to shit, so that seems apropos. Yeah, the tree, I said holy shit because the tree outside the window came down. Or at least a not insignificant part of it did. Um, yeah, we're... So there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, and yeah. we don't need to talk a lot about it, but just know that, like, there's well, a lot of shit going on yeah, in the world. Yeah, there also this episode, it won't come out for a little while, after we've recorded it. It'll come out exactly when it does for you, because you're listening to it. Right, but this is not the metafiction episode, so you don't need to go too much into that. No, 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 no. But no. it is a very special episode for us because it is our 50th podcast. Yes. Which is something that when we started to do the idea of having the podcast was going to be maybe six or seven just to see, you know, if, you know, how it worked out. Mm -hmm. But it, apparently it seems to be working out pretty well. We got a um, bunch of great followers. We get um, some good feedback from the people who give us feedback, and we're still enjoying it. So I think that's the most important thing. We got at least one positive shout out from an author we covered. Exactly. Uh, shout out to Victor Laval. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is already like way more than I thought it was going to be. We have way more listeners. We've done it for way longer. Um, I'm really proud of the podcast. Want to thank everybody. Uh, that listens to it. Also, want to make a really nice shout out to the support that we get from our fellow podcasters, the Nerdy Neighbors. Yes, so always very supportive and uh, very up, you know upbeat and sharing our tweets and commenting and just being really cool guys about the whole thing, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, and you can go and you can listen to that podcast. You can check out the couple episodes I was on to hear me ramble. With even less direction than I have on this podcast. <laughs> so that's fun. Because this is just about books. Over there, oh, I could talk about comics. I make a bunch of Urkel jokes that no one asked for. Uh, but so for our 50th episode here on Dried Up Brain, uh, we decided to cover something from 50 years ago. I was really surprised that this book turned out to be 50 years old. Because I really sort of think about this author and this book as something from your childhood so to be clear well we're, co we're covering uh fantastic mr fox by raul Dahl. i was gonna call it the fantastic mr fox it does not have a the in it and yeah i uh read a lot of Raul Dahl as a kid. Oh, so to be clear, anyone who's just joining us, you thought maybe 50 episodes in was the jumping on point. Andrea is, in fact, my mom. And a librarian. Mm hmm And Nate is my son, obviously, and a writer. Sure. Yes. And we're both avid readers. So. Well, yeah. We've read at least 50 books. <laughs> <laughs> Half of those are comics, sure, and one or two of those episodes might have been about short stories. But essentially, we've, you know that we've read at least 50 of these bad boys <laughs> that I like to call books. 
But yeah, I think the thing with... So, I heavily associate... Well, first off, I just want to say, Ralph Dahl, kind of a crummy guy, said a lot of really bad stuff. We're not really going to talk about that on this podcast. One, because I don't think we're really the people to do that. And two, it would just take up the whole episode. Yeah, and I think like you pointed out off podcast, we have had selections by writers that have not culturally, politically... Um, stood the test of time. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about Lovecraft like a million times. Yeah. He's kind of the poster child for this. But yeah, so like, I just want to get that up front. I don't want anyone to think that we're ignoring that. But that's not what this podcast is going to be about. But I associate Rob Dahl really heavily with Quentin Blake. Is that that guy's name? Yes. Yeah, the illustrator who did these uh, very like loose, I always describe him as sort of chaotic feeling, uh, pen and ink illustrations for Raoul Dahl books and I think those I like I, I've always heavily associated them those are a later entry into his sort of work and so I think there was around the time that I was a kid a big effort to republish a lot of these works in new formats with these new Quentin Blake illustrations well that makes a lot of sense because even though Fantastic Mr. Fox first came out in 1970 the edition that we read which was the same one that you had when you were little is the 1996 edition yeah and that has those illustrations right which are great by the way i'm a big fan of his work in general i mean going back to when i was a kid and i think they work really well for this too because there's such a um tense and frantic atmosphere to this story so let's talk like a little bit about just the background of Roald Dahl. He was born in 1916 and he died in 1990, which would make sense with the Quentin Blake revival. It was right near the time of his death. He was a spy, a fighter pilot in World War II. He was a chocolate historian, which makes a lot of sense because yeah. he publishes Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, he was a medical inventor, which I'm not going to get into. There was a situation with his, one of his children, and he helped to develop some kind of medical device, which was named after him. And he's really sort of... In England, he's a much more beloved writer, children's writer, than he is in the United States. I would States. say the, the, you maybe the way to think about it is like the place of reverence that like Dr. Seuss has here, he probably has... In England, maybe even broader, though, because he wrote for a broader audience than Seuss did, at least during his prime. Yeah, but I think a lot, some of the books, especially for, like, this is not going to be, like, your generation podcast, but I think, like, the children that, of your generation learning to read, a lot of these books were points where you learned how to read and they have a special importance. I'm sure some of these were the first books that I read myself. I would think so. But I think, you know, if you think of, like, books that he had written, like James and the Giant Peach, Mm -hmm. which had the movie that came out at the same time, was very popular. Matilda has, like, a cult following, especially for, like, um, kids who kind of feel, like, a little bit weird and different. Yeah, and those movies both came out when I was a kid, around this time we're talking about. Those were both movies that I loved as a kid. And we had them both on VHS, and I would watch them fairly regularly. (laughs) Yeah, and I think, like, even Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, that's kind of, like, 
the the original movie with Gene Wadler is like very, still very popular, and then they had a you know a redo, which here I'll say right complicated. now. Complicated. I'll say right now. My hottest take, possibly ever, but at least my hottest movie take, is that I think that Tim Burton and Johnny Depp, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, is a better film than the Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka, and the Chocolate Factory. Okay. I think that Gene Wilder's performance is great. Well, I'm one of the weird sort of kids that, you know, had a huge connection to Raoul Dahl and, like, read his works, or I never really gave much of a crap about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Like, that wasn't really one of the ones that we read a lot. I didn't watch that movie a ton. I liked it, and like, we did watch it. But, like, my nostalgia for Raoul Dahl books is largely confined to Fantastic Mr. Fox, Revolting Rhymes, Matilda, and the BFG. I was going to say the BFG. But I think James and the Giant Peach is also very popular. Yeah, oh, and James and the Giant Peach. That's the, that's the other big one for me. But uh, I think that Gene Wilder's performance is great. But, like, he's not per... It's one of those things where it's very, like, um, skillful and arresting. But, like, in service of what? He's basically not a character. He's, like, playing an angry god, which is a lot less interesting to me than the Tim Burton one, which is a story about a person. And also, it uses the original lyrics that Roald Dahl wrote in the book with new musical compositions by Danny Elfman. Oh, that's interesting. And that's cool. And I like that movie. And feel free to unsubscribe from the podcast now that I have said my opinions. Well, I mean, don't unsubscribe right away. Because if you listen to the Sherlock Holmes one, they claimed that that was the hottest take that he was ever going to take. So he's already surpassed that okay. in just two episodes. Well, I, I think that the, arguably this Willy Wonka take is hotter because it's m- more likely to get people to be angry at me. <laughs> uh, I think that the... The I'm taking a wilder shot with the Sherlock Holmes one, but like outside of Holmes scholars, who's really going to be mad at me? Well, yeah, that's true. But um, just to sort of wrap up just the discussion about Earl Dahl, one of the things that I appreciated about him, especially having an early reader or an advanced reader, was that he wrote for children, but he didn't write down the children. Yeah. Which I think is kind of like a really important way to stay relevant. Because now, you know, with the whole young adult movement, there's writing that's specifically for advanced readers and things like that. And I think that having an option to read these books kind of like took like something that was meant for children and then didn't pander, didn't like talk down, didn't sugarcoat. I mean, the characters, all the characters are wrong with that parents are kind of awful or they're non-existent i mean they mm-hmm. kind of like it's and you know he talks about some high level issues that kids might be dealing with but don't know how to process and i think that's sort of one of the pluses of him you know despite the fact that he's problematic he did take this sort of stand which is one of the earlier writers that did that that didn't really talk down the children yeah and i think that's a big part of why people even remember his stuff there's a million you read a Especially if you're a advanced, voracious reader as a kid, you read a million children's books, and, like, how many of those do you ever remember? And it's like, I remember pretty much all the Raw Doll ones I read. The, the countless others completely slid off of my brain the second I was done reading them. I also really liked... I was an early reader, 
and I went to a Catholic school and I don't know if I mentioned this I like to read a lot even when I was younger and the library at the school would only let you read you were sorted into the reading level and all the books were sorted by the reading level that you were so you couldn't read above your reading level while you were in grade school mm-hmm. so even then when I was an advanced reader I was still reading things like Raggedy Ann's adventures like even though I wanted at home I was reading like higher level books that you know my mom would give me but at school I was still reading these sort of dumbed down children's books and I'm writing reports about them and then I got a copy of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and I read that and I was really excited about that book and when I went back to school and I said I want to read more books like that and they said you can't they're not in your reading level so I kind of was like when I was younger, I was kind of sort of pining for, like, access to a library that would allow me to read more books that sort of didn't talk down to children and had strong female characters. You know, like, when you get into, like, Matilda, she's, she's confident. She inspires young girls. I think She has a, unimaginable psychic powers. Yeah. So I think, like, I think that, in a way, is kind of, like uplifting to realize that you know this sort of started a little bit of a movement where kids could read books that were that talked a little bit more to them and the things that they were experiencing instead of being sort of like Horatio Alger books where they're trying to like morally you know World Doll a lot of his books don't even have a moral well then I guess I mean you gotta dig for it maybe I mean, a lot of his books are are about how the people in power are awful. Well, yeah. That happens in this. That's in Matilda. I mean, it's in the BFG, too. The stronger giants are the evil ones. I guess the queen's the good guy. A good guy in the BFG. Yeah, and I think, like, a lot of stuff like inequality and class issues. I think, like, they're kind of... They might be a little bit advanced for kids when they're at the age where they're first reading these things. But I think those ideals that he's instilling in those characters carries on yeah well, so you want to get into uh the book itself yeah do you want to sort of give a little summary sure so i mean our protagonist is mr fox uh he is a fox he lives in a tree in an area that is surrounded by farmland and specifically three huge sort of corporatized farms run by uh, Boggis, Bunce, and Bean, who are three grotesque and greedy and evil uh, farmers. I will get talk about it a little more, I think, but I do like that this uh, book really goes after this sort of um, illusion, this sort of, like, romanticized illusion of, like, the hard-working farmer. And it's like, no, these dudes are landowners. That's what a farmer is. And, like, that's what these guys are. And uh, Mr. Fox sort of keeps his family fed by raiding the farms of these dudes. And that eventually leads them to try and kill him, which evolves into this protracted siege of the hill where the tree is where he lives. Which leads Mr. Fox and his family... Well, Mr. Fox gets his tail shot off. (laughs) Yes. Uh, and then he has to dig through tunnels through the hill. Eventually, he uses those tunnels to do even more secretive raids on the farms. And then, as the hill is completely destroyed, he and the other animals in the area retreat deeper down into the earth, eventually establishing 
an underground society that will thrive and continue to live off of the unsuspecting and inept farmers. Yeah, the first I was reading this and I was like, oh, this is about capitalism. And then I was like, oh, this is about class disparity. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, this is about like inequality. And then I kind of like towards the end, I was like, I don't really know what this is actually about. I mean, other than being a story about a wily fox and three greedy farmers slash landowners. I mean, it's I def- definitely very British. Yes, it's very British. Um, I I think it is sort of is about all the things you said, like. He, he he does he doesn't do a lot of over explaining of this. Like this isn't one of those books where it's like we don't get a prologue where Boggus, Bunce, and Bean steamroll the wilderness and put up their big flat corporate farms. But we are told straight up like these are three huge farms, and there's a hill in the middle of them. So it's like they, Mister Fox, and the rest of the animals do live. In a place where their natural habitat has been destroyed and reformatted into a habitat that is more conducive for these rich humans to live on. And so it's like, Mr. Fox ostensibly causes a problem by stealing from the farmers. But like, what is he going to do otherwise? Where is he going to hunt if these three enormous farms completely surround his home? Yeah, and I don't think... Dahl makes any... He minces no meat when he describes these characters because it's like Boggus, he's the chicken farmer. He's very fat. He only eats chickens. He eats like four chickens a day. He's very grotesque and sloppy looking. Yeah. And, and then, then, again, pro- arguably problematic fat phobia. There's a lot of like your physical appearance reflects your personal character in Dahl's work. Yeah, then there's Bunce, who's a duck and goose farmer. He's very tiny. Yeah. And I'm assuming he's a dwarf, but he also very... um, He doesn't handle that very well, you know, so that's another thing. He's also got the grossest character detail. So, like, he establishes that Boggus, right, that's a chicken farmer? Yes, but then the last one is Bean, who's a turkey and apple farmer. He's very thin, and he only drinks alcohol cider. Yeah, so he goes through what all of them eat. I think, which I think is actually a more, maybe a more important character detail than it initially appears. So, Boggus eats three chickens for every meal every day, uh, which is pretty gross in and of itself. That's too many chickens. Uh, but the were and then Bean only drinks cider. He doesn't eat any food, so he's real thin and constantly angrily drunk and then like a like a belligerent hungry drunk all the time (laughs) and then bunce eats exclusively homemade donuts stuffed with foie gras yeah which is i don't know that sounds grody but the thing i the reason why i thought it was that specific detail is because donuts are something that kids think are great yeah and then to sort of like bastardize it by making it gross by putting these livers in it these livers in it but so the conflict in this story is entirely driven by food right um and i think the reason he goes into detail about the bizarre eating habits of these guys is to show that their 
like it's not about survival for them. The person whose survival at stake is exclusively Mr. Fox. These guys are capitalist landowners. They are motivated entirely by greed. They've twisted themselves into these inhuman forms where they don't eat like normal people do. And they eat the way they do out of decadence and uh, out to show their class power. So that, like, we don't... I don't think Dahl wants us at any point to feel sympathy for these dudes. Well, I don't... I think... They're not hard workers that Mr. Fox is robbing. They're parasites. I think that's pretty clear because in the depiction of the animals and well in the book the animals are depicted as sort of humanized anamorphic animals but the drawings of the animals they're adorable yeah so like Mr. Fox is like wearing his he's got like a suit with a vest yeah and his wife and then he's got these three little kids and even the other animals that show up they're very cute the rabbits and the badgers and mm-hmm. And then it's also like when um, they do their like big underground raid on the farms. What they specifically raid every time are overstuffed storehouses. Right. These dudes have have stockpiled all this stuff, and they're sitting on it and accumulating capital, and it's starving out the uh, the animals. And it's also like we know these dudes are not, you know, noble workers because they can abandon their farms for days at a time to wage a protracted siege on a single fox and not suffer any losses. Well, that's what amazed me about this book is that it complete it escalates so completely. Mm-hmm. First they're upset oh, it's great. about the fox stealing from their storehouses and they shoot his tail off and mm-hmm. then they said, "Okay, now we're going to wait him out." And then after not patiently waiting, it then, like, goes from, like, three guys sitting around a hole waiting to, like, they get, like, earth-moving machines and they get dynamite and they start doing all these terrible things until they literally destroy the landscape. Yeah. In, In pursuit of Mr. Fox, he is only a threat to their accumulated capital. But I think, like, this is an example of, like, how Roald Dahl doesn't sugarcoat it. When Mr. Fox gets his tail shot off and he comes back into the thing and his wife is, like, cleaning the wound, his son says, well, it'll go back, Dad. And his response is, it won't go back, son. Yeah, I think this is good. He's very upfront, like, immediately. Like, the threat is death. They will die if the farmers get them. They're going to hang Mr. Fox's corpse up. On display if they catch him. And I think having his tail get shot off is a nice and another important detail because it shows that there are consequences, permanent consequences. He doesn't get his tail back. His tail is permanently gone. And then for like a child, right, who's reading this, like you think in these like iconic terms, right? Like in your mind, there's like a Schenectady, right? Like the fox's tail represents the fox the tail is the fox and then shooting it off they rob him of his iconic foxhood right right and they make him into a man right that's his identity and that and then they get upset when he starts to act like a man yeah which is a problem 
But I think it's interesting because not only is, is Mr. Fox trying to be himself and support his family, he's also trying to teach his children how to survive in this world with these people. Yeah. Which is very relevant. Like, there's this, there are these people that are, like, they are going to want to hurt you and kill you. And it's like, we, you have to do some, here's what you have to do to survive. So, I mean, Mr. Fox was happy and willing to just keep this sort of symbiotic relationship where he did, in fact, steal from the farmers, Mm -hmm. but he only took what he needed. Yeah. And then when they escalated and they started starving his family and starving the other people, other animals that lived underground, that's when he decides he wants to do a heist. And that's when he decides that he's going to take enough food to create a feast. Yeah. I mean, that's a, you could also argue that this is a story that's about the uh, destruction of the commons. Yeah. That there's this sort of, before, like, there's this sort of unofficial understanding, like, that, that this space is for everybody, and it's like, whatever, you have your chickens here, like, I could take a chicken. And then the farmers make it very clear that that's not the case. That there is no no common area, no, there's no capacity for, like, you know, inter... You know, they make it clear that it's like this. The, these spaces are specifically for the farmers and the humans only, and there's no space for the animals, and they literally drive them underground because they just have to take everything. They can't countenance the idea that there's space that doesn't belong to them that's not of, for their exclusive use and inhabitants. Well, that's true, because there, if, if they would have just left the situation, the fox would have stole one or two chickens a week. But mm-hmm. now, not only have they destroyed their own land, but they've also now created this precedent where everything is antagonistic, and these foxes and these other animals are going to just now live underground and take what they want from these farms. And again, really relevant. We see the situation where somebody's entitlement, where you know, a class of people's entitlement causes them to lash out violently against what they see as a challenge and it just makes everything worse even for them but also i think there's also i mean other than the comeuppance where at the end of the book you you realize that they're going to be waiting there for the fox to appear and he's never going to come that's really not a justification because they don't even look around at the decimated forest and say look what we did in pursuit of one wily fox and you get the impression, I think, that if they did look around, they would just blame their destruction on the fox, right? Oh, I think so. But, like, at the point where he decides that he's going to rob the storehouses, it just becomes, like, a heist story. Yeah, and I, I yeah, it totally does. I mean, I think there's also, like, a little bit of, like, a kind of a great escape type vibe going on here, you know, uh... Prefiguring something like Chicken Run that's like literally the great escape set in a corporate farm. But I think once we like, I mean, we also watched, we didn't mention this in the beginning, but we also watched the Wes Anderson adaptation of the fantastic Mr. Which Fox. I think ultimately ends up being a very different story. I think he focuses more heavily on the heist part. Well, so I, I tweeted this, but I, I believe it to be true. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox and Inception are like kind of the same movie. They're <laughs> they're both like a very um, stylized, acclaimed director uh, who is having or had a kid who then makes a movie that's like 
about how being a director makes it hard to be a dad and uses heists as a metaphor for um, filmmaking. Like, I think in Fantastic Mr. Fox, Wes Anderson reconfigures Mr. Fox to serve as a stand-in for himself. And I think the, um, I can't remember his name, but the Leonardo DiCaprio character in Inception is obviously a stand-in for Christopher Nolan. And that one's more obvious because you can go through that movie and pick out the different characters and say, like, which aspects of filmmaking they represent. But I definitely think, like, the conflict, like, there's no sort of internal character conflict to the book version of Mr. Fox. But that's, like, hugely on display in the movie. The, the movie is, like, very much about, like, the conflict between uh, the role that Mr. Fox has set up for himself in society and his family and the pull of his internal essential nature, which is, you know, the, there's the repeated refrain of I'm a wild animal or we're wild animals yes. in that movie. And it's about, like, you know... It's much more on his head. Like, in, in, he doesn't, the movie version of Mr. Fox doesn't need to steal, like, on a material level. But he's driven to. And the movie asks the question, like, what's the difference between those two needs? Just because the one need is originating internally and one need is originating externally, how, which one is, why is one more valid than the other one? Like, our internal world is our entire world, so why wouldn't the needs that arise there be just as, essential and important to us as the needs that arrive from the outside world and then that there's that scene at the end like there's also the repeated talk of like wolves right like Mm -hmm. and the wolf represents like a a purely natural purely instinctual animal that like and there's this question of like does mr fox mr fox could be a wolf if he wanted to or does he want to be a man again i think like he and Wes Anderson really um, latches on to the whole, like, his tail getting shot off thing. And that the tail becomes kind of like a MacGuffin that drives a lot of the plot in the movie. Like, towards the end, most of the conflict comes from a character's failing to try and retrieve Mr. Fox's tail. Importantly, you know, his son, right? Right. But let's, like, quickly wrap up the thoughts about the book before we start talking about sure. it. So... At the point where Mr. Fox has been, his family is starving mm-hmm. and he realizes, he goes up and he sees like what they're doing and he realizes that this is going to be a long siege. He decides this is when he plans the heist. And then what his plan is, is he's going to, with his four children, he doesn't, he only has one child in the movie, but he has four children in the book. Yeah, but none of them have any names in the books. But he decides that he's going to tunnel underneath each of the storehouses and steal food from them. So they steal stuff from the first, from the chicken one. Mm -hmm. And then as they're moving on to the second one, they run into the badger who says, like, all the animals, the rabbits, the moles, and this badger family are all hungry, too, because of what's happening. And Mr. Fox decides, because he sort of has this sort of sense of community, sense of, like, sort of obligation, because he did incite this situation. He decides that he's going to then, the rest of the heist is going to be to get enough food to have a feast to feed all the families. And I really like this one part where he's like, especially the the son says, don't forget to get carrots because the rabbits yeah. are vegetarians. 
So they go and they go to the storehouse and they steal the food and vegetables. And then finally they go to the cider storehouse and they run into the rat who's a self-proclaimed security guard. Is that in the book? Is he security? Yeah, I know he's, he's there and he's like siphoning off cider. I think he's protecting the cider because he wants to keep getting access to it. Yeah. But so I think like a couple important things about this sequence are it's not just a heist here. Like he's building like they're it's important that they're tunneling, right? Because that's like a form of building, but it's like a form of like insurrectionary building that it's like destruction in the service of creation. And by tunneling to do the heist, they're not just doing a heist. They're also building a permanent community support infrastructure. Right. They're building a permanent pathway in to access these storehouses rather than just running in and grabbing something, which I think is important. Yeah, because the risk in going to... That was the thing. Every time the fox went to steal the chickens, mm-hmm. there was that risk that he was going to get caught. Yeah. So, And this also sets up this sort of comeuppance for the farmers because they go through this whole plot of destroying his house and destroying his land so that they think he'll have to come out. And he kind of one-ups them by saying, like, not only do I not have to come out, but now I have a permanent source of food that I can continue to manipulate. Yeah. And then I think in The Rat, we get an example of someone who's, like, who's made themselves subservient to uh, these greater forces, and it's just led to them being, like, isolated. The Rat's not part of the community. He's just, like, a lonely jerk that lives in, an, in a cider storehouse, and he still has to hide. Right. Like, he doesn't get anything. He's not respected. He's not an equal. He's just a... He's just... A worker? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But he's like lumpen prol. Right. But I've kind of got the, like, as I was reading this, I was thinking, like, if you think this is, like, a Peter Rabbit story, it kind of is, but it's also more edgy and more realistic. Well, it's like, I think the important thing, right, is Peter Rabbit, he, he does not interact with, like, companies, right? Like, what's his face? Who's he stealing carrots from? Mr. McGregor? Mr. McGregor is not running a corporate farm. Like, so Mr. McGregor is not going to, like, start a, like, a guerrilla war against him. But it's like, you could easily see, like, I I, I like, because another thing that I read a ton of as a kid were those, like, Beatrix Potter stories. And I think I appreciate this as one being, like, one that's, a story that's using essentially the setting and style of that to tell this much more dire uh, and high-stakes story. Well, yeah, I think when you read Peter Rabbit, you don't think, okay, this is an anti-capitalist story. This Mm, is a story about socialism. This is a story about, you know, class inequality. But when you read a story like Fantastic Mr. Fox, that's what you think. Yeah. Remind me at some point we have to cover a comic called The Tale of One Bad Rat, which is like a graphic novel that is about a girl who runs away and is heading towards Beatrix Potter's house and uses a lot of uh, details of her life and imagery from her stories to tell this sort of like, uh, I guess you could call it a feminist story. But at some point, we're going to cover the tale of one bad rat on this podcast. (laughs) Because I read that last year and I really dug it. So do you think this is about like socialism? I don't know if it's about socialism. But I think I think the thing if we're if I had to like guess author intent right 
like I think the thing that makes the most sense is is the stuff I was saying about like this is about class and the destruction of the commons by the upper class. Like, if if I had to take a stab at what he he was trying to write about specifically, that's the thing that makes the most sense to me. And which then kind of makes this a story about class insurrection, which uh, rules and is great. Do you think that Mr. Fox is a narcissist? I think Mr. Fox in the... No. I don't think Mr. Fox in the book is a narcissist. Mr. Fox in the movie is absolutely a narcissist. Because he doesn't call himself the fantastic Mr. Fox in the book. His wife does. Right. Um, yeah, I don't, think he's a, I don't think he's a narcissist in the book. I think he's definitely a thief and he's definitely an instigator, though. Yeah, but I think, like, he, he's essentially, like, um, you know, he's, he is the, the trickster thief archetype. You know, he's a, he's a Robin Hood, he's a, a Nazi, he's a Brer Rabbit-like figure. Yeah, I could see that. I can definitely see that. You want to talk about the movie? Yeah. Uh, so the movie is from 2009? Nine, yes. Uh, I remember, do you, like, seeing the first trailer for this at the, like, in the movie theater. Do you remember what we were seeing it was me and for I don't know I was thinking about this because I feel like it's got to be something specific because it was me and you and you know my aunt your sister and my cousin all went to see a movie together at the mall and I remember us coming out afterwards and talking about the trailer I don't remember I what it could have been at that time Yeah I don't I don't either but I remember seeing, you know, I was already super into Wes Anderson by this point. I mean, 2009, I would have been 16 or 17. Yeah. And I got into Wes Anderson because we were super early adopters of Netflix. Like, when it was DVDs. Right. Via, just exclusively DVDs through the mail. And I remember us getting, like, it must have been Rushmore, right? I uh, think so. And watching it, and it, like, blew my mind. I was like, you can make a movie like this? Like, and I think a lot of the influences he was drawing on was stuff that I was, like, already interested in from being a kid because, you know, you get exposed to, like, lots of old cartoons and stuff. Like, um, I think people don't talk about it a ton, but I think those, um, oh, God, what is the name of that studio? It did, like, Gerald McBoing Boing. Oh, I, I don't know. Just. There's, like, an old animation studio. Uh, that I think has, like, a huge influence on, on Wes Anderson. And, like, I was always sort of fascinated by their their stuff. Because they would play, like, old cartoons on, like, Cartoon Network back in the day before they had a ton of original programming. United Productions of America is the studio I'm thinking of. That's a very German network name. Um, but, like, there was all sorts of stuff like that that I was, like, already interested in. And then seeing, like, this movie that was in, taking a lot of those influences... And applying them to live action and using this really stylized style and it had Bill Murray in it. I think it's also interesting to note that James and Giant Peach, while not produced by this different director, different studio, different style, mm -hmm. was also a stop motion movie. You know, I think that fits his stuff really well. Yeah. Like, I kind of like the, the Spielberg BFG movie. It's pretty sappy. Because, I mean, honestly, it's Spielberg. Like, it's, it's gonna be. Um, but that really should have been animated. 
Yeah, probably. But I think this, like, also I think this movie, it sort of encompasses what you, like, visually it has a really strong nod to the Quentin Blake illustrations, but then also to the older illustrations in the first and second editions of the book, different artists. And I think it really fits that sort of um, claustrophobic underground feel, you know, because like Wes Anderson movies are always like side scrolling and you see that sort of span of like, you know, when they're doing the heist, which is one of my favorite parts and they're running through, they're digging through the tunnels. I kind of really like that. I mean, Anderson uses a lot of cross sections, Right. right? And like, which was another thing, another reason I liked his movie so much when I first saw them was I was obsessed with those, cross-sections specifically, because you would get them in comics, like where they would show like, you know, you would get Handbook of the Marvel Universe and it would be like, here's the Baxter building where the Fantastic Four live and you'd get this huge cross-section and it would have all these little arrows pointing at like the different stuff in there. Or you would get those for like the X-Mansion. I also loved um, Mighty Max, like (laughs) play sets that would like be a surface and they would unfold almost like a 3D sort of diagram or a 3D um what what is the word I'm looking for diorama uh but like as a cross section and I had this book when I was a kid that was like all nature cross sections right and so it'd be like a cross section of like an anthill or like a uh, beaver dam and like would have like these sort of uh, magnified parts showing the different little sections and that, like, view of, like, this, like, hyper-focused view of, like, this is the maximum amount of information. Like, this is you seeing a space as completely as you can see it in one second. It's, like, the, it returns a space into, like, a glyph, essentially. That was always really satisfying to me. And so it's, well, I think even before that nature book and Wes Anderson, you were always really fascinated with the Richard Scarry books. Those are, that's another and thing, that's, yeah. that's, like, that's exact, that almost... Like, I don't know if Wes Anderson can look at that and say, that really inspired me, but you can definitely see, like, even the way that the animals are animated. Man, he should do a Richard, a Busy Town (laughs) movie. That would be amazing. I would love to see that. Um, But I love this sort of richness in the details, like their clothing. And then there's um, personality traits that he gives them that are not in the book. Like, the mom is a much more independent character. She's yeah. a painter. She's an independent. Um, she has her own career. And that, you know, the other animals are, you know, one is a chef and the, the badger. and The badger is Mr. Fox's attorney, which I don't know if this is the intention, but he keeps referring to him as uh, my attorney. It made <laughs> me think of uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yes. <laughs> but the thing I was going to say was he uses all those cross sections. So for a story about, di- like, tunneling, Mm-hmm. It's like perfect because it's sort of like he he becomes like this like almost like an ant farm shot. But of... I think the difference between the book and the movie, most importantly, is the depiction of Mister Fox. Mm-hmm. Because in the book, he is a dad and he's a fox and he's just trying to survive. But in the movie, it's very clear that he has become humanized. Yeah, and he's going through this sort of existential crisis where. He like he just buys a new house, like exactly like you said. Yeah, he buys a new house. They're they're not having a child, but they're having her nephew come and live with them because their her brother has this mysterious. He has pneumonia. Different. Well, it changes. Uh, different, Double pneumonia. Right. 
So, so his family is expanding. He has this sort of job that's like very uninspiring. He's like a... Um, he's a reporter. Or yeah. he's a columnist. He's a columnist. It's unclear what his column is even really about. But so... So he decides that he's going to... They buy a new house, which is the tree, and they move in. And he sort of gets upset and he decides that he's going to pull one more heist to make himself feel more like his old primal fox self so yeah so what's going on is here is like instead of just starting and being like the fox lived here sometimes he steals from these bogus points of being what anderson establishes in the movie is mr fox was like a career criminal like <laughs> there's like an animal society that can sort of mostly it seems like survive without necessarily raiding the farms it's unclear how that actually works because it's not really important to the story but mr fox is like an adventurous roguish figure who makes his living stealing from the farmers and one day him and his wife or at least his fiance at this point get trapped in a fox trap we don't see how they escape but the assumption is it's through tunneling um and she announces she's pregnant and makes him swear off thievery. He becomes this columnist and he becomes dissatisfied and he feels this calling of his essential nature to go and steal shit because he's a fox. And he starts doing it and he starts pushing it and he can't just be one last heist. He does like one heist with his new friend, the possum, whose name I cannot remember. Kyle. Kylie Kylie uh who is uh he's a great character he's like the squat little he's like a completely new character too but he's like this squat little possum in like a photographer's vest and he has like these like totally dead looking eyes and you can't tell if he's comprehending anything and there's this running gag where Mr. Fox is outlining the plan to Kylie and he can't tell if he understands him or not because he's just staring unblinkingly at him. And he, like, <laughs> does this hand signal to indicate that he hears him. And then later in the movie, Mr. Fox gets, like, uh, shocked by something. And he gets that stare and he has to signal like that, that he understands the plan. And that, um, their continued stealing, you know, alerts the farmers who escalate the conflict like they do in the book. But it's much more, like obvious that in the movie that mr fox you know that what they're doing is not justified still because obviously they have much more than they need he's not taking anything that's putting their livelihood in danger but it's more obvious that like mr fox went out of his way to do something dangerous and has to face the consequences for it and the consequences affect the entire neighborhood yeah and i think in the beginning he doesn't really understand that like what he's doing is he doesn't sort of take into consideration the fact that it's impacting everyone else until his wife sort of points it out to him. So he's kind of like a little bit oblivious about the effect that he's having on on the community. And at the same time this is happening, um, his uh, nephew-in-law, I guess, Christofferson, who is a white fox, who is another completely new character. Who's the perfect teenage boy fox yeah and his own child is a very awkward weird kid do you want to guess who voices him did you guess jason (laughs) schwartzman you're right i love my favorite part (laughs) one of my favorite parts of the 
movie is they have this very complicated sports game it's, and Owen Wilson is the coach. He's great, yeah. He only has like one scene really as the coach and he's very good. And he's kind of explaining it like it's kind of like Quidditch but Bob's setting like a pine cone on fire. It is like Quidditch in that I think they're both specifically parodies of cricket. <laughs> it's called Whack Bat and involves setting a pine cone on fire and you have to hit it and run around or something before the pine cone burns down mr fox was like a prodigy at this which then lays a little bit more of like context to his characters like he's a guy who's just was always good at whatever he did right and that's part of why he is the way he is and why he sort of and i think initially doesn't really consider that there could be consequences for his actions i also think what's different in the movie than in the book is that well first of all mr fox is a narcissist because he needs to get constant feedback and and reward for everything that he does he needs to be told that he's he's a fantastic mr fox yeah that he's witty and he but i think what's different is he mobilizes them first of all again to have the same heist so instead of performing the heist as a reaction to getting caught he uses the big heist it's a reaction to getting caught in the trap of society exactly this is the joker movie we all need it he then mobilizes the entire community to get revenge on these three farmers. Yeah. Which I think is kind of like what probably like, you know, maybe if Wes Anderson read this as a child, he was like, I wish that he they would have blew up the farmers or whatever. Yeah. So they definitely sort of get revenge in the town and in the farms. Well, so I was getting on when I brought up the Christopherson thing is the other, like the B plot of the movie is that... Um, Mr. Fox's son, Ash, is, like, this weird outcast kid who wants, like, in the series, the same way that Mr. Fox is pushing himself into this shape that he doesn't belong into by trying to go along with this, like, quiet family life. His son is trying to emulate his dad, and it's not working for him. And Christopherson is much more, like, immediately, at least superficially, like the dad, and that puts... Ash and Christopherson in conflict. Yeah, there's a funny scene where they he invites Christopherson to do a heist, and there's this thing where they all have um, bandit hats, bandit hats, and which then, are like balaclavas. Yes, and they're all black, and they're official bandit hats. And then um, Ash doesn't have one, so he makes one out of a sock. So then he has this. Um, yeah, he's his it, bandit hat is a sock until the very end when his father validates him by giving him a bandit hat to wear. But I think Ash sort of is like he represents a sort of awkward, weird kid who comes into his own. Because mm-hmm. by the end of the movie, he has to rescue Christopherson and they become allies, and that he uses his weird predilections as a way to like make himself unique and also. To help the community. So there's sort of that heartwarming moment where this awkward kid realizes it's okay to be weird. Yeah. Even yeah. though his mother at one point specifically says, Ash, you are a weirdo. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. Yeah. And then, um, well, the thing you were talking about, Mr. Fox being a narcissist, I want to touch on. There's like literally a, I think, maybe the best scene in the movie uh, where he has a conversation with his wife when things are at their darkest. Where he literally says that. He's like, yeah, I need people to constantly say that I'm good. Like, the fantastic Mr. Fox becomes, like, ironic in the movie. It's, like, the thing that he wants desperately everyone to say. He wants to 
be able to follow his essential nature without consequence and to be praised constantly. And he doesn't need to know, doesn't know what to do when he's not getting that. Because in order to like live that quieter life, it is a life that is largely without praise. Like, what are you, what are you ever going to do where someone's going to call you fantastic then? Like, you're, there's never going to be any stakes. And he ends up inadvertently creating these incredibly high stakes. Well, I think the thing with, and I like that at one point the wife, when they're in their part where they're digging into the tunnel deeper, because they've escalated to using, like, dynamite to blow up the tunnel. Mm -hmm. She says, like, you can't, your reckless behavior, you can't use the fact that you're fox nature. You want to go back to being, like, an, an animal, fox animal, and your nature is not an excuse for you to take these high risks. Yeah. And then he kind of, like, realizes that. But I really like the part where he gets his tail shot off. And it's the same thing. In the book, he says, you know, it's not going to grow back. And he says the same thing to his son. But then the tail becomes a sort of, like, symbol in the movie. And one of the farmers actually takes the tail and turns it into a tie and starts wearing it. So, yeah, Bean becomes, like, the, the antagonist in this movie. He becomes, like... This looming force. And he's, he is, I think, set up specifically to reflect Mr. Fox. Like, he also is, like, an egotist. But he's an even more malign form of an egotist than Mr. Fox is. And he's voiced by Michael Gambon. And you pointed out when we were, while we were watching the movie, and I think I agree with you, is that his character design looks like Raoul Dahl. I think so, definitely. Because none of the... Uh, you know, there's the three human characters. They they are all sort of just none of them really look like the voice actor or anything. The only thing thing like that is, uh, Bean's like assistant guy, Petey, <laughs> is voiced by Jarvis Cocker and just looks like Jarvis Cocker. Yeah, there's a really <laughs> funny part where there's like a musical interlude. Yeah, he like <laughs> plays the banjo. The movie's really funny. Like, I just wanted to be clear about There's that. There's lots of visual gags that are very funny. I think it might be Wes Anderson's most, like, laugh-out-loud funny movie. I mean, I think because it's all animated, he has total control over, like, timing and atmosphere. Um, which, you know, he tries to get in live action, but you're never going to completely get because you're at the whims of reality. Um, and, like, he can have the characters move. In a specific rhythm that is in service of the joke, which is he does a couple times really well. I think there's also a lot of sight gags that go on. Yeah, yeah. Especially during the heist part, and I really like the part that when they go to the cider house and yeah, they meet the I, rat, and he's kind of like this sort of he looks sort of like a French kind of. He looks like a French thief. He's like very <laughs> tall and skinny with a striped shirt, and he's always smoking. Well, he has like a southern accent, and he has a switchblade that he's constantly flicking out, and he uses it with his tail at one point. He's voiced by Willem Dafoe doing a, like a, this southern accent. Um, and he's a much more, like everybody else, he's a much more fleshed out character in the movie, because he's like Mr. Fox's old partner. Right. Who sold out and become security for the Cider House. And it's the same thing where it's like, he doesn't really get anything. He's just a tool. He, he's and worse than that, like in service of being this tool, he has to do violence to the people that should be his community. He gets in a fight with uh, Mr. Fox at one point. 
he hits on Mrs. Fox. Yeah. Because apparently they had some kind of... She also has a shady past that they allude to, and she has some type of former relationship he, with He him. besmirches her honor. <laughs> um, and he has a really funny and sad death scene. Yes. <laughs> where he, like, all he wants is to drink some cider as his last wish, and they, like, pour some sewer water in his mouth, and he's like, I like liquid gold. <laughs> And then they send him down the sewer. It's like a Viking funeral. Like, everybody's around him. It's great. It's so funny. Willem Dafoe does an amazing job voicing this rat. And then they just immediately go on to their heist, which is sort of just kind of follows like a traditional group movie heist. Yeah, you're down to having like the beats where things go wrong and yet you have to modify it. They ride a motorcycle at one point. And my one of my favorite touches is the dog that has chronic rabies. <laughs> yeah, it's a beagle specifically that has chronic rabies. They at one point they talk about never look a beagle in the eye, <laughs> and Mr. Fox has to look a beagle in the eye. And that's another like this moment where it's like there's a wild like that's a domestic animal that has become wild, and like it is a a, a grim reflection of like what Mr. Fox could be. And then the other counterpoint is the wolf that they see in the distance as they're escaping on the motorcycle. Well, that's another thing where it's like Mr. Fox says says to his wife, I want to go back to being a fox and being free Mm -hmm. and being this sort of like rogue. But then also he wants to be a fox, but then he also wants to ride a motorcycle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's all of these conflicts between like the natural and the unnatural, your nature and society, your fox, your species and your motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) So then it, I guess the biggest twist and difference between the movie and the book is that at the very end of the movie, they tunnel into a supermarket. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that Bunsen... Boggs, Bunsen, Mean? Yeah, they open a supermarket together. And they end up going to the supermarket as their lifetime source of food. Yeah, and there's this kind of like... Possibly a bummer ending, I guess you could say, where Mr. Fossey has a speech where he's like, uh, well, you know, like, these duck crumbles may not be made of real duck, and these apples look fake, but at least they got stars on them. And I think, like, then the movie sort of, like, is taking shots at, like, modernity, or, like, almost, like, taking shots at, like, back-to-nature stories, where it's like, this is where we are, this is reality, like, at least we're together, like, just eat the fake apple, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's almost like there's similarities and there's differences, but it's almost like a, like a thoughtful interpretation of the book. Also, do you think, is it possible the ending is supposed to symbolize them moving to the suburbs? Well, I guess they would have to. Well, I kind of felt like he was moving to the suburbs when they moved out of the... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because they're, like, living in, like, a thing, and he's like, I'm tired of being poor. And then he makes a point of getting a real estate agent to buy the house, and then he's like, isn't there any pine trees available? Like, he's really making this, like, being very, like, braggy, trying to upgrade his family into this house. Yeah. Which is, like, a, a definitely a step up from living in, like, if the tunnel was an apartment, now they're living in a house, so... Yeah, well, when they, when, well, two things. One, the real estate agent in that scene is voiced by Wes Anderson. <laughs> uh, two, like, when they're living in, like, the hole or whatever, he's like, I don't want to live in this hole. It makes me feel poor. Yes, and then so then he moves <laughs> to a, a big tree house. Which he then destroys with his 
unchecked ambitions. But the movie is much more blatant about, like, here is the inevitable march of modernity. It's like, they don't, the end of the book is, they live in an underground society where they build, like, houses in the earth. The end of the movie is, they live in the sewer and survive by stealing from a supermarket. Yeah. And then, but it is also, like, you know, you make the sewer into a community. You, you know... You take the supermarket food, but it takes solace in the fact that you're still alive and together. But I also think, too, he's like, when he's planning the heist, he takes advantage of the, you know, what makes each animal unique and uses that to perform the heist. Mm-hmm. So he sort of, it's just like, like, you know, like a British heist movie where he assembles this team yeah. of, like, top-notch yeah, there's this funny sequence where he's going through all the animals and saying their Latin names and finding out what their expertise are. Um, and then you find out that the badger, who's supposed to be this straight-laced lawyer... Has he's like, voiced by Bill Murray. Yes, he has a secret expertise in, like, demolition. Yeah, he's like, what's... He's like, goes for his expertise, and the badger goes, demolitions expert. <laughs> and he's like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> Again, the movie's super funny. The voice cast is great. I mean, I know a lot of people complain... When movies stack up their voice cast with uh, famous people that are not voice actors. I think it works better in this Wes Anderson movie because he already has his actors deliver their dialogue in a really stylized fashion. Mm-hmm. Which works for this this animated feature. Like, it's not just like... You, you know, he's used to directing people to not just lazily read their lines exactly the way that they would intuitively... So he kind of transforms all of these actors briefly into voice actors. Like, honestly, she's still good, but I think the worst performance in the movie is Meryl Streep. Yeah, she kind of really had like a flat kind of... But I think she was also supposed to show that she herself was also disappointed in this sort of normal life, but she was trying to like adjust. I mean, that's also... I think that's a weakness with Wes Anderson as a filmmaker. He's always got that character, the like flat, unaffected. Yeah, woman. it's kind of like the character from the Royal Tannenbaum. It's, yeah, it's, it's like uh, Scarlett Johansson in the Royal, or uh, Gwen, Gwyneth Paltrow in the Royal Tannenbaums. It's like uh, the girl in Moonrise Kingdom. Like they're all their characters always there. It's maybe one of the weaker parts of him as a filmmaker. Uh, but I think everybody else, I mean, I, I still, like I said, I don't think she's necessarily bad. I just think that that's the one where the scenes show the most. But other than that, I think the voice cast is pretty great. The music's yeah. great, you know? Yeah, I like this. And this sort of, I like this sort of Wes Anderson, like, style. Like, the soundtrack, you like, is represented by, like, the little Walkman that they're using. Oh, yeah, he has, like, a little, <laughs> Mr. Fox, when he's doing his heist, has a little uh, radio that clips onto his hip. Yeah, and then that's where the music is coming from. And then also there's this kind of like... Like when Christopherson and Ash are having this conflict. Mm-hmm. And then their conflict is that they're basically the same. And they have a lot in common, but they don't like that. Well, I think it's... What I like about it is it's like... It feels very real. The conflict is they're pretty much the same, except... Like, on all the levels that you can measure objectively, Christopherson is better than Mm -hmm. Ash. Well, he's also, I think, he's better 
appearing to the adults, which I think is one of the reasons why Ash is upset. Yeah. Because they're always like, oh, he knows karate. Oh, he's good at meditating. Oh, he, you know, he's really good in science and he's really good at this game. And then it turns out that Ash himself is also always really good in all those things. Like he pretty much his... The way he frees Christopherson from being captured. He gets captured by the rat and he gets held hostage. Yeah. Is he uses the techniques that, and they later on they again use the techniques that they learn in this weird game. In Whack Bat, yeah. To like get revenge on the farmers and also to free Christopherson. Mm-hmm. So. Uh what do you do you like the movie or the book better? I I like them both because I thought the book was sort of like a variation well the movie was a variation of the book mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting I I, I, uh, I think I like the movie better I still like both of them a lot um, I I like these sorts of adaptations it's always interesting to me more interesting to me to see the adaptations where they have to add stuff than to see the adaptations where they have to subtract stuff like that's always going to be frustrating and unsatisfying I think a lot of the times if you're a fan of the original work to like sit down to watch a movie is something real long where they have to cut out all of this stuff but I think it's a really interesting artistic exercise to see like okay if we just adapted the events of the book this would be like a 15 minute short so like what do we have to add to flesh this out into a full length movie and how do we unify all of those parts together into a cohesive and satisfying story, which I think this movie does really well. Yeah, I think so. I also think that, I mean, it's... Sometimes when you adapt the children's book, you're adapting it for children. Mm-hmm. And then the adults who know that children's book will look at that and say, that's really weird. Like, the Grinch? Yeah. Like, people are like, oh, that's not my Grinch, or, you know, like, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think... The- Hashtag not my Grinch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think, like, this is kind of like... If you're a child and you're reading the book and then you go to see the movie, you're like, oh, this is cool. And then if you're an adult and you're watching the movie of a book that you read when you were a child, you can say, you can still say, oh, this is cool. Yeah, and I think this has, like, I think he does a pretty good job of having the same kind of tone and style as the book, right? Like, this feels like you could watch this as a kid and it's, like, not a thing that talks down to you. It feels like just, just as, I mean, maybe the book has a... I think the trade-off is the book has a broader range going down and the movie has a broader range going up, right? I think so. Like the movie, they will, the core audience is probably pretty much the same. The book has the potential to appeal to more people who are younger. And I think the movie has the potential to appeal to more people who are older. I think when we, we were talking, because I'm currently, I just finished um, Philip Pullman's the Secret Commonwealth, which is the second book that's in the... It's two series of his dark materials. Mm-hmm. There's the original books with Lyra and she, you know, Lord Asriel and blah, 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 which I talked about endlessly. But then there are, there's a second series that's contemporary. He's writing it now, where the first book was a prequel to the events that led to Lyra being sent to Jordan College. And then this book is, she's a, an adult. So she's in her 20s now at this point. And it's kind of like we were talking about this because I, I was telling you some weird parts of this book. I won't go into detail about it. But one of the takeaways that I got from the book was that 
it, Pullman is a writer who is used to writing either for children or young adults and has decided that since his audience is aging up, he's going to write them in an adult fashion. Mm-hmm. So there's these weird, awkward romances, and then there's this attempt to deal sort of with um, higher level philosophical issues that kind of like stagnate a little bit in the story. It's, it's a very weird, complicated book that probably needed a better editor than it had. But I kind of got this impression that Pullman was trying to be like, oh, my readers, the ones who loved, you know, the Golden Compass are now in their 20s or older. So now they need adult books and I'm going to write that adult book. And it kind of like doesn't really work as well. And I kind of got like when I was reading Dahl's book, he also wrote books for adults, which were yeah. not as successful as his Oops, sorry. his children's. I books. W- I would highly recommend to anybody. Um, I believe it's called Kiss Kiss, which is a collection of his short stories that were, you know, targeted at adults. Uh, that's a really good collection of short stories. But what I was getting at is that this Wes Anderson movie takes the sort of concept that was written for children and sort of modernizes it, but doesn't make it for adults. Mm -hmm. He still sort of keeps that sort of generic, like, could be for adults, could be for children, and I think that works really well. Yeah, another funny gag that is throughout the story is every curse word is censored with just the word cuss. Yes. Regardless of what word it is and in what context they're using it. And so they say cuss all the time. And he's like, you trying to cuss me over? But I, I love that because I can imagine a kid watching that and being like, yeah, like getting that humor mm-hmm. and like also adults being like, okay, that's a really sophisticated way to make an adult. I loved as a kid um, jokes about censored profanity. One of my, it stuck with me forever, but like one of my favorite single episodes of any cartoon is the SpongeBob episode where they learn how to curse <laughs> and it's always censored with uh, like a dolphin squealing sound. <laughs> yeah. That made me lose my shit laughing when I was a kid. And it's still really funny to me. I also think it's pretty funny because it kind of reminds me of, like, science fiction novels where they make up, like... <laughs> yeah. Like, they make up curse words and you're supposed to be like, oh, that's a curse word. I mean, you could argue this is a science fiction story, right? It's an <laughs> example of xenofiction. There's some world building. There's a society that exists separately from our real world society. And it's, a, it's about a conflict between two different... Uh, types of sentient beings, you know, you could you could argue that this is a kind of an alien invasion story, but the <laughs> aliens are our farmers. Exactly. Well, I mean, I really liked it. I thought, like, for a choice for our 50th anniversary, I, at first I was like, this is kind of weird, but I kind of think it really fits because it is almost like a novella. Yeah. I mean, it's like an illustrated story. It's, yeah, I was... I was a little worried it was going to be, like, way too quick of a read with not enough to talk about. I think talking about the movie helped, too. But, like, we were we had this idea to do something that was 50 years old for our 50th episode. And, like, we were going through the stuff that was published in 1970, and this really stuck out as the most interesting choice amongst a bunch to talk about. Because I think I said before we even got for when I first proposed the idea, I said we are not reading Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Oh, that God. we are not reading that book. I don't care. And that was like the number one book for every list that lists like the top books from the nineteen seventies. And I would recommend anybody that is interested though to check out the I don't even own a television episode about Jonathan <laughs> Livingston Seagull. 
because uh, they really they give that book uh, the proper examination that it deserves. <laughs> they and you know it fits. They have this idea, this thing on their podcast of like weed dad books, <laughs> and their their thesis on Jonathan Livingston Siegel is that it is a very much a weed dad book. Is it like? The way I feel about geek love, some dads feel about that. Maybe. I don't know. But, like, when the Weed Dad books, like, it's sort of stuff like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is a Weed Dad book. I think I bought you a copy of that, but I don't think I ever bought you a copy of Jonathan No, no. I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I do kind of like that book. The problem is, like, that book becomes bad if you think that the, if you decide to read it. And imagine that they're, the guy is supposed to be right. <laughs> like, the main dude in that book is a bad dude. And it's a pretty compelling... I mean, I brought it up in our Hellraiser episode. It's like, Frank and Hellraiser is like the guy in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I would love to do an example. They also did an episode of, of, of I Don't Even Know Any Television about that book. But I would like to examine that at some point. It might be too long for this podcast. But, I don't know. Uh, I, why are we talking about that now? Because <laughs> <laughs> I did not want to read that. I don't. I wish I had an example of like a similar level of children's book that was published now, so we could sort of examine how things have changed in fifty years. But I think in a lot of ways, like really good children's literature is fairly like universal across the time span. Like a really good book written for this reading level now is probably not going to be that much different from this, like stylistically the subject matter might be different the attitude might be different but like as far as the you know structure and style i think this is pretty much like the form yeah and i think i think that Roald Dahl is going to appeal to a certain i mean like i said it's it was great for like advanced readers sophisticated readers um readers who have a sort of adult sensibility mm-hmm because, I mean, I think I'm, I'm pretty much Matilda is an example of that kind of kid. Yeah, yeah. You know. For sure. Uh, do we have anything else to say? I don't think so. Uh, oh, oh! I wanted to, one of the things I wanted to bring up is like, this is the second... Yeah, this is the second children's book we've covered on this podcast. The first one was The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. Oh, right. And yeah. this is very different. Well, that's what I was saying. It sort of panned... That panders a lot. I don't know if that panders. But yeah, it, that one is much more like... It's softer. It's much more like... It's got a clearer moral. Uh, there are like no stakes. Yeah. Uh, this one is... And you know, there there are decades between those two. And, and this one's like much rawer, much more real. Much heavier. And a completely different writing style. Too. Oh, Totally. I think that Roald Dahl definitely has that sort of 1960s kind of aesthetic. And even, like, everything that he writes sort of feels like it's from then. But it's interesting to look at this and look at Live Adventures of Santa Claus. And, like, there's all of this, like, even though it comes way earlier, and this is from the 70s, and that's from before that, there's all this, like, hippy-dippy mysticism in the Life and Adventures of Santa Claus and this romanticization of... Uh, you know, unspoiled wilderness and the forest that here in a story that's explicitly about animals is completely absent. It's a much more pragmatic and grounded 
worldview in the Fantastic Mr. Fox than you get from Al Frank Baum. And I think those both have strengths and weaknesses. I like both of those books, and I like both those writers. But it's interesting to see the um, the sort of spectrum of philosophy that can be represented in children's literature. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like... I think that's why children... I, it's harder for children to select a style of writing that they like. Sure. Not that their writing is sophisticated, but just that it's not like children's books are not slotted into genres. Mm-hmm. Like, if you went to a bookstore and you were looking for a book for kids... Oh, yeah, they would just all be together. Yeah, like, there wouldn't be, like, a science fiction book. And, and I don't think... Or they're grouped by age yeah, sometimes. which is kind of problematic, like I said, about kids that read earlier or read different kinds of things. And I think, like, also, there was... It's not so bad now because I think people have opened up, especially librarians were guilty of this, of like um, thinking that comic books were not things that kids should be reading. But I think it's so now with the sort of birth of like graphic novels and young comic books have such a complicated history in terms of like who is and isn't allowed to read them because it's like they're for kids and they're not for kids. There's the there's the Frederick Wortham stuff where it's like kids shouldn't read comics. And then it's like only kids should be reading comics and comics become in this sort of like ghetto. Like there's a story, uh, Jack Kirby's origin story is that he found a pulp magazine in a gutter because a man threw it in the gutter because he didn't want anyone to see that he was reading it. Well, I remember... And it was like a sci-fi magazine. When you were in middle school and they would have these testing days and the thing with the testing days was testing would go on all day long and you were allowed to bring a book or a puzzle book, or you could bring something to entertain yourself quietly when you were finished, mm-hmm. if you finished early. And the first day you went to the testing, it was like three days long, and you took like some graphic novel or some printed compilation of a bunch of comics. Oh, I can tell you exactly what it was. It was a collection of the original Swamp Thing comics. Right. So then, so then you took that, and we were like, okay, you take that, you read it, because that's what you were reading. And then at later on, when they had the teacher conference, it was brought up that you were reading a comic book. Yeah. Here's and the... then it was sort of shameful because you were an advanced reader and here you were, here we were condoning you to be able to sit there and read a comic book. And our kind of like, and I was kind of like insulted as a librarian and as a mom about that because I was kind of like... What is one? Why does she care what you're reading? Because that's censorship. And two, why is she judging the reading level of an adult comic book against? Is it any better than what I had a beef with? Was those goosebump books? So I. So the next day, the next time you went to the test, you had to take a book with you. Yeah. So then you took a wrinkle in time. Yeah. And which I is got... probably less of a reading level bump than reading. Swamp Thing. I remember it being the Swamp Thing thing specifically because the extra level of fucked up was that they sold me that at the Scholastic yeah. Book Fair. I bought that at school. And then they told me I wasn't allowed to read it. Um, Vertical Time's good. I like that book. I think it's mildly bullied because my copy, had, which I also think I bought from the school at the Scholastic Book Fair, had a giant shirtless <laughs> buff centaur dude on it. <laughs> um... Which, in retrospect, though, that's a great cover. And I kind of, you know, lots of Wrinkle in Time, this is a total diversion. Lots of Wrinkle in Time covers now, when they're not the movie cover, which is the fucking bane of my existence. I hate movie covers so much. 
Um, they got this kind of like cut out 60s Art Deco, not Art Deco, but you know what I'm talking about, like uh, Saul Bass sort of aesthetic to them, yeah. which is cool and fitting, but I like the older ones that have these like painted sci-fi novel type covers. And that is my brief corner where I talk about covers for a wrinkle in time. <laughs> but to get back to the story, the whole thing of the story was not that you were not reading a, you were you were not reading your level of reading because you were reading above your level, but that you were reading what they perceived as not quality reading. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah. So like I said, comics have like it's all, all constantly pinging back and forth. Between, like, what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable. I was just recently reading, um, rereading Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. And I was, like, looking up stuff about it. And there was apparently, like, a bit of a controversy when that book came out. Because he says in the first chapter, uh, he calls The Snowman, classic children's book, The Snowman, a comic book. Mm -hmm. And it's inarguably a comic book. But... People went out of their way to brand it as a children's book and a picture book because that was more acceptable than being a comic. Even though if you read The Snowman, it's like Watchmen-style nine-panel grids on every page. It's a wordless comic. Yeah. But I think, I mean, that's what I'm saying, like, for, like, what's ex what is children's literature and what is acceptable children's literature and what is quality literature is kind of, like, subjective. And I think that judging those things are kind of still have that sort of like threshold of what is considered like good for kids and what is considered I mean there's still like a whole bunch of schools that ban like Captain Underpants like and mm -hmm. I, I don't there's also really, a thing I liked as a kid I don't really <laughs> got that like I did have a, the problem I had with Goosebumps was that it was a very easy read for you so for you to read Goosebumps and do a book report on it was kind of like a cop out Sure. So that was one of the things I had. But I really don't want to, like, whatever you read, like, at home or you wanted to read, like, who cares? Like, if you wanted to read The Lord of the Rings one day and then you wanted to read Captain Underpants the next day, that's fine. You want to read comic books? You want to read books that are about comic books? This was another debate we had about with one of your teachers was your Marvel encyclopedia. Where technically it was a book. Yeah, but it's about, yeah. But it's about superheroes. So therefore it is not a good book for kids to read. Yeah. But now it's like everything that is coming out on the market that has to do with kids and young adults deals with the same themes that you found in comic books at that time. Well, now Marvel Comics are the monoculture and it's a totally different thing. And it's a little, there's an argument, discussion to be had about how much um, monetary success affects academic acceptance uh, which is maybe, which again, is a long discussion to be had at another point, but that's definitely a thing I've thought about. Uh, I, was gonna I always think about this. We had a conversation with a fellow librarian, and the conversation was, kids are not reading quality literature anymore. They're not reading things like Little Women and Great Expectations. They're reading things like Twilight and The Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. And my sort of take on that was that that's what we had to read. Yeah, And if they had the Hunger Games when we were 12 or 13 years old, sure shit we would be reading that instead of Little Women. Yeah, it's but it's like, that's always the case. Like, you get assigned the literature in school, then you go home, 
and you read a comic book or you read like a trashy romance novel that you like take off of your aunt's bookshelf or something. I'm not calling you out specifically. <laughs> um, but like, But like that's just how it goes. Like, no, it was South Pacific. <laughs> the Herman Walk book. <laughs> I'd read that right now. I don't care. It's funny that you bring up Goosebumps because you funny you bring up Goosebumps in the same episode you shout out Nerdy Neighbors because one of the Nerdy Neighbors suggested that we should cover a Goosebumps book on the podcast. See, I think that would be fine, but my problem wasn't that like no, oh know. it's trash literature kids are because you know what I love trash literature. Yeah. I'm all for that. In fact, I feel like take two books, one good and one bad, and read them at the same time. That's how I feel yeah. about it. No, no, no. I totally... I now understand your point about Goosebumps. I did have a mild rebellious thing where I would just read them in secret. <laughs> so I probably read way more of them than I would have anyway because you said something about it. Yeah. And then I, I... That's like the advice that my mom gave me about parenting was like, if you don't like it, don't make a big thing out of it. Yeah. And I think it must have caught me on a bad week because I made a big thing about the Goosebumps and now it's endlessly come back many times to bite me in the ass. Yeah. Well, the thing with those was I could read them super quickly because they were below my reading level. So I would like read them like in the library or whatever, or borrow them from yeah. someone. And like, I don't read think a bunch we ever them bought them. No, I don't think I owned any Goosebumps at all. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think I remember also at one point you convinced your grandmother to buy you a Goosebump folder so that you could have it for school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had a Goosebump <laughs> folder, but didn't have any of the books. I remember that. Yeah, it was the one with the hamster on it because it looked dope. <laughs> He had like slime coming out of his mouth. It was, and he was like giant and busting out of the cage, and uh, it was great. I loved stuff with slime in it, you know. <laughs> uh, oh, so then the last thing I wanted to ask was like, so this book has had like multiple v- different illustrators work on it. Like this Quentin Blake one is only uh, the most recent. I don't might even be one after that. Is the version that is illustrated by Quentin Blake and the version that is illustrated by the earlier illustrators, are they the same work? Does changing the illustrator change the nature of the text? I don't think it changes the nature of the text, but it definitely changes the tone of the book. Mm -hmm. Because I think the way the characters are depicted sort of pushes this. This is like when we we talk about this a lot with comic books. The illustration is just as important as the writing Mm -hmm. because they're companions. And I think it's the same way. Having this sort of like goofy, whimsical Mr. Fox who gets his tail shut off and he gets a little X Band-Aid on it, that sort of sets the tone of like what kind of Mr. Fox he is. And I don't think it necessarily changes what the story is about, but it definitely changes your experience reading it. I th- yeah, I think I pretty much feel the same way. It's different with comic books because I think the the art and the writing are are you know they're 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 two parts of the same work. I mean, you could argue that the role that writing has in a comic book is the same role that illustration has in something like this, where like that's the supporting player. So like changing the illustrator cannot change unless they're doing something totally wild and drawing something that's completely like divorced from the text or subversive to the text the illustrations can't change the essential themes of the work which means changing the illustration doesn't change the work but like you said it can alter the tone it's almost like um you know watching a movie in color versus watching it in black and white or something like that more than than it is like watch like 
it's it's more like that than it is like watching a remake or something. Well, we talked about this with the Sherlock Holmes. Now we're really getting off tangent. But yeah. The Paget illustrations set the sort of tone of what Sherlock Holmes looked like. And that's like sort of cemented Sherlock Holmes in people's minds. Mm-hmm. So if you would read the stories of Sherlock Holmes, if you couldn't possibly in some way not be impacted by the cultural phenomena of Sherlock himself. But if you had just read those stories, one person reads the stories with the illustrations and one person just reads the story, their impression of what Sherlock Holmes looks like or how he acts might be completely different. And in fact, like it's become this sort of mashup of in pop culture, the illustrations and the depictions of Sherlock Holmes kind of influence who Sherlock Holmes is separate from the books. Sure. And I think it's the same way. If you would have had a super natural, realistic version of Mr. Fox in the, in his, um, burrow, and then you had a picture of Mr. Fox as an, as an actual fox devouring sheep and then you have a farmer shooting him you're going to get a different you're going to get like a fox and a hound kind of concept from it but because they're sort of humanized it sort of gives you a different view of how mr fox is yeah i agree and i think that's interesting yeah yeah absolutely i think a lot of iconic works of literature probably would be different if they didn't have these sort of implied illustrations like Compl- christmas carol yeah is a perfect example I mean, if it didn't have the illustrations that go along with it. I mean, when was the last time you saw a copy of The Christmas Carol that didn't have illustrations? Oh, yeah. No, never. But I mean, like, what, how different would it have been if you, like, say, like, you know, Stephen King's It was an illustrated volume? More? I think more writers should work with illustrators across the board. And only part of that is me just thinking that illustrators in general should get more work. Uh, I think it's interesting, too, that a lot of the genres that focus on illustrations, like science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. Oh, I love when we read, like, the sci-fi magazines and stuff, and they have the illustrations. I think that's always more interesting than reading the, like, published, the version that's published in, like, a collection or whatever that doesn't have, where that stuff's all stripped out. I think it would be an interesting project if writers and illustrators were specifically put together like if you had a comic book artist of a certain style Mm -hmm. and you put them with a modern writer like you say you had a comic book artist and you put them with margaret atwood and you made them create a illustrated story like that could be like really interesting yeah i think so i was also thinking because uh, i brought it up you know i did that thing where i started making a point and then i had to bring up the contradictions to my own point in the middle of the sentence um I think a really interesting project would be to take some public domain works uh, that have illustrations and to make, try and make new illustrations that invert or modify the actual themes of the work. Like I said, like you could do illustrations that are subversive to the themes of the book, but are still literal illustrations of the events of the book. And I think that would be a really cool uh, project for someone to do. I think that's a great idea. It's kind of like the whole concept of taking, like, the villain from a story and writing a backstory. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, take a book and write a backstory for a book and illustrate it would be an interesting premise. Um. So do we have anything else to say? I think we're good. We covered a lot. I know. Uh, so obviously our next episode we're going to do um, The Wicked and Divine Volume 4. 
Do you have the title for that? Because I don't remember it. But that's back to the regular art team, I believe. That's that's going to be pretty much just uh, McKelvey and, oh, and, and Wilson, right? Matt Wilson on the art. And then, you know, Gillen writing it because he's been writing it the whole time. And at that point, we'll be almost halfway through the series because it's only nine volumes. I guess halfway through the next volume <laughs> after that we will be halfway through but you know you know how numbers work it's beyond our capability to understand and then in that episode we will announce uh the novella for the next month so make sure you tune into that and uh i'm stalling as we get the title for the volume I don't know why I'm doing that, though, because I can just cut out pauses. In Rising the... action, it's called? Okay, cool. Rising action. So, yeah, it makes sense for something that falls roughly in the middle of the story, right? Right. I mean, we might have to discuss some uh, metafiction or something at that point. So, yeah. Um, thanks for sticking with us for 50 episodes. I hope you stick with us for 50 more and more than that, because I want to do more than 100 episodes. <laughs> I don't know if, well, I was going to say I don't know if I could read 100 books, but I'm already past that for my Goodreads goal, so. Yeah. Well, this has been a long pandemic, so that's one thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. (laughs) So, do you have anything from your pandemic uh, reading experience you want to recommend to someone now? I think the greatest thing, that the best thing I have read during the pandemic was Louisa Erdrich's newest book, The Night Watchman. I really liked it. It's a story that's based on her grandfather's life in the 1950s and 60s. He was a night watchman in a industrial factory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a really well-written book. It's very beautiful, like the rest of her books. It's very um, structured. The story flows. There's great characters. There's some new characters into her world that she's sort of including into it. And then there's a couple references to some of the iconic characters so sounds good i have been reading a ton of comics during the pandemic and what i'll recommend is uh caricature by daniel klaus it's a single story that was published in eight ball like a short story about a caricature artist covering a couple days of him working at a festival and meeting a girl and it's sort of about art and identity and self-image there's a collection i believe that is called caricature and other stories that collects a bunch of those um, short stories from 8-Ball with that kind of serving as the centerpiece. If you can track down that collection, I'd recommend it. All that stuff in there is good, but Caricature in particular is a real gem that I think often gets overshadowed by his longer works like Ghost World. Okay. So two good recommendations, just like we did on our first episode. Yeah. So, so uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Bye.